I think the best experience, not only the education, was having the illness itself. You know, I, I am so blessed to have been diagnosed with MS because I had the advantage of, like I said, in 2001, to have the illness, but really didn't affect me too much. So when we started our program, I was still doing a lot of things, still walking, still jogging, still running. So I was able to work with individuals that are still able to do that today. But as the illness progressed, and I went to a cane and went to a walker and now went to a power chair, it's great to identify with not only those individuals that are in quotes, high performers to also those that are in a power chair, having that experience, not only knowledge from school, but also the knowledge of having the illness itself has made it um, very easy to adapt to any type of MS that comes into our gym. Welcome to the Find Empathy podcast, where we discuss the interaction between health and emotions. My name is Dr. Megan Beyer, and I'm a clinical psychologist with training in health psychology, rehabilitation psychology, and neuropsychology. In this first series, we're going to focus on a population that I work with very closely, individuals and families living with multiple sclerosis. If you would like continuing education credits for listening to this episode, please head over to findempathy.com backslash learn. If you're a mental health provider that specializes in health populations like multiple sclerosis, please also head over to findempathy.com and click on Get Listed. We would love to list your practice in our directory, and being listed is free. We're trying to help families and people living with chronic or acute medical conditions find the providers that can help them most. Not long ago, people with MS were told to go home, rest, and not overexert themselves. Through the work of both patient advocates and exercise researchers, we now know this advice to go home and rest is not only wrong, but potentially harmful. Current data demonstrates that exercise and movement in people with MS is associated with improved cognition, mood, fatigue, and improved progression outcomes. In this episode, you're going to hear from three wonderful experts, Daryl Kuchera, who runs an in-person and virtual gym called MS Forward, but also lives with MS, a physical therapist at Johns Hopkins named Peiting Lien, and the Associate Vice President for Research at the National MS Society, Dr. Kathy Zakowski. Each of the experts that you hear will share a unique perspective on the importance of exercise for people with multiple sclerosis, including how to keep moving when living with MS, the benefits of physical therapy, and an overview of the latest and most important research. One thing that I think is really unique about this episode is hearing about how to exercise in advanced MS. We're going to start with Daryl Kuchera, who runs an in-person and virtual gym called MS Forward. Can you share a little bit about yourself, your name, and your journey with MS? You bet. Thank you, Megan, again for this opportunity. This is this is sensational. My name is Daryl Kuchera. K-U-C-E-R-A is how you spell the last name. And I'm actually located in Omaha, nice, bright, sunny Omaha, Nebraska. It's about 60 degrees today, so it's great to be in the Midwest for sure. So my journey with MS started in 2001 is when I was diagnosed. Optic neuritis was my very first symptom. It was just, I, I think it's amazing how people remember the important things in their life, right? Their birthday and anniversary if you're married and those types of things. But you also remember the day that your life changed. And for me, it was September 18th. 
2001 at 10, 10 in the morning. I, I think people that are listening to this will remember that and identify with the very same thing. Mm-hmm. And at the time you had started a gym or were planning to start a gym. Is that right? Correct. It was, it was really a calling we felt. And for the entire year, for about probably the year up to that time, we really wanted to train athletes. I had been an athlete through high school, through college. I've coached all the way through after the playing days were over. And it was really to start a program to educate young adults in proper strength training, plyometrics, stretching, speed training. And that's exactly how we started. So ironically, it was August 18th of 2001 was our first class that we had. How did that mission with your gym change after you were diagnosed with MS? Exactly. And again, I think everybody here that's listening to this will identify with this. You know, you really have a choice, right? And it was a month to the date that we opened the gym is when the, the optic neuritis started. So you have a choice. You can give in or you can mm-hmm. take the ball and run and we made the choice of continuing to go. Once you're diagnosed, maybe right after that, it's pretty normal. The, the side came back and things were kind of normal for a period of time. So we made the decision to continue going with the gym. But now you've shifted gears. You're still doing some of those first things that you described, but you're also working with people that have MS and chronic medical conditions too. Is that right? That's exactly right. I had a pretty severe exacerbation in 2002 and went through physical therapy, occupational therapy. And as I met with more of the therapists, it's their point was, why don't you think about doing this with your gym? And mm-hmm. so we met with the, the MS Society, a group of neurologists here in Omaha, some physical therapists that knew about us. And we modified our programs and started the uh, programs with MS and chronic illness in May of 2003. And even before COVID, you were offering classes that were virtual. That's exactly right. And kind of the funny story with this, I was doing a presentation in Upper Wisconsin. It was an MS presentation. and There were probably 40 dairy farmers in this presentation. And we talked about the importance of movement and exercise, and not only for the, for the physical, but also for the emotional, mental. And, you know, their point was, well, this is all great, but I live 100 miles from Green Bay. I live mm-hmm. 100 miles from another place. Well, how do I get to a gym to do this? And so that really spurred on the idea of maybe we should start doing teleclasses and and really draw in those individuals that are in Upper Wisconsin, for instance, to learn more about MS and have a um, exercise program. That's how it started. I can relate to that. My dad is a large animal veterinarian and he travels around to all different horse farms and cattle farms. People work long hours. They're getting up early. They're working all day. It's very difficult for them to take the time to go to a gym. So this seems like it'd be very convenient. You know, and and that's really true, Megan. I'm sure these guys are getting a lot of exercise, managing cattle and and what they're doing on on their acreage or their farms. But it's still different. It's so important to keep your shoulders strong and your back strong and your heart strong. And maybe you don't always get that in the day-to-day. So it's a nice compliment to your daily activities. I'm curious to learn, how did you get the experience or the expertise to adapt exercises for people that have um, MS and other chronic illness? Wonderful. So it's a combination of two things, I I believe. So first off, I am my thesis away from my master's in Mm -hmm. fitness which is exactly like exercise science, but more the focus is on uh, program development. But the 
the specialization is on that bridge between the hospital and life. So um, the, the goal is once you leave the hospital, what can life skills, lifestyle, what can exercise nutrition possibly take away from some medicines that you're on? I got, got the bachelor's degree before we even started the, the program for the individuals with MS, but I think the best experience, not only the education was having the illness itself. You know, I, I am so blessed to have been diagnosed with MS because I had the advantage of, like I said, in 2001 to have the illness, but really didn't affect me too much. So when we started our program, I was still doing a lot of things, still walking, still jogging, still running. So I was able to work with individuals that are still able to do that today. But as the illness progressed and I went to a cane and went to a walker and now went to a power chair, it's great to identify with not only those individuals that are in quotes, high performers to also those that are in a power chair, having that experience, not only knowledge from school, but also the knowledge of having the illness itself has made it um, very easy to adapt to any type of MS that comes into our gym. Many times I'm working with people who may be using a power chair or may be using a walker. And some of the comments that I hear are things like, I, I don't think I can do an exercise program. Have you heard similar comments and how do you respond? Yeah, absolutely. And our motto is, you know your body better than mm -hmm. I ever will. So for some individuals, we have a structured program that we do. It's always trainer led. It's always structured. But some individuals respond great with a 20 minute workout right? 20 minutes and they can sense the fatigue starting. And so great, that's their workout. Some can go an hour. And it's interesting for those that are on disease modifying therapies, you know, maybe that next day you don't feel that great. So the next day you're still at the gym, but you only work out for 20 minutes. But then another day of the week, you don't have those symptoms. So you work out for an hour. Every day is different. So every workout is different. So, you know, there may be five, six, seven, eight people in a class, but you're going to have your own unique workout based on how you feel that particular hour of that particular day. And what are some of the benefits that you see both physically and mentally when people are exercising regularly? You bet. And certainly the physical, right? Because we're going to work everything. We're going to work, like we always say, from toast to nose. Mm -hmm. I think a, a proper program isn't just repetitions and sets and stations. There's a lot of laughter in between, mm -hmm. in between the sets individuals come early and they just laugh and talk to individuals, then they stay late. And I think so much of that, just that normalization, again, in quotes, normalization, just being able to, to, to do everything you do, used to do before. So even though our program is designed around the physical component of exercise, you know, we will do a lot of things too, to work the mental. So for instance, if you are on a balance board, if you're safe, there's a cage all around you, we will have you do multiplication or addition or subtraction while your balance is. So let's work the mind as well oh, as Oh, that's the fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So it works really well that way. That's wonderful. There's a few research studies that are coming to mind where they did that, where they had people exercise while also doing cognitive tasks and it helped both their cognition and their physical uh, functioning. You are right on Megan. And I really believe that it does. And you know, you're balancing, you go, okay, I'm working on balance, but it's amazing how you're working on your core. 
right? You're working on, because you have to stay on that balance apparatus and your core gets engaged the entire time you're on there. You don't think about that. You think about balancing. And with your virtual classes, do you have that same sense of community where people are talking after the class? Very much so. You know, if the class is, for instance, nine o'clock in the morning, people will log on at 8.45 and just talk. So when we get ready to start the class, first thing we usually have to do is, okay, it's nine o'clock, let's stop laughing. We have multiple accounts. So we can use one account for nine o'clock and then they can stay on and talk and then and laugh. And then we start the next class on the next account. So it works really well. But I think that is, you know, if it's, if it's just a class, you know, and when I was in my twenties and things were great, that's just, that works out wonderfully, but you know, stop, go, stop, go, next station, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think as, you know, we, we get this illness with MS and then Megan, you brought this up earlier before, you know, the pandemic has been going on for 13, 14 months now. Just mm-hmm. that laughter with people is so important. Even if there's a screen in between you, I think it's so, so important. So exercise is the driver, but the, the joy and laughter and camaraderie is just as important, I think. Yeah, I can imagine that's what keeps people coming back because sometimes it's hard to motivate yourself to exercise, but if you're going to be laughing and there's friends that are going to be looking out for you or asking where you were if you didn't come, those things are the things that keep people coming back. You said it perfectly, Megan. It it, is exactly right. And it holds people accountable. And that's exactly right. Why isn't Megan from Baltimore on with us this morning? And you will get a voice message or you will get a text to say, Megan, you okay? Things okay today? (laughs) You kind of become part of a family that way. So you're exactly right. What are some of the biggest barriers that you see that stop people from exercising or getting in the way of exercise? Yeah, I think the biggest is just that. And and I think it's true for everything in life, Megan. If if you lead with MS, Mm -hmm. it's always going to be difficult, right? Well, I have MS, so I can't. If I mess, so I can't. And I think that's the biggest barrier. It's amazing mm. what you're going to be able to accomplish. And I think people think, well, I didn't really work out or exercise before I had MS. Now you're adding MS to the plate. I'm never going to be able to do it. So it's just that doubt, that, that mm-hmm. self-doubt that you have, and maybe a little bit of fear, I think, as well. And, and that's one thing we want to do is make them feel really comfortable. So And I think a lot of people, like me, for instance, I'm in a chair. So they go, well, I can't work my heart. I can't get the cardio part of it. And oh my gosh, we can take you through. You can stay in your chair. We can box for five minutes. First of all, it's fun, but really Mm -hmm. your heart rate going. Or we'll do, people are familiar with the battling ropes. You see them on a lot of different shows now. And it's amazing how battling ropes will really get your heart going and work your core and work your um, shoulders and chest and back, and you never have to leave your chair. So I think it's, there's so many options that we can have that I don't think people know about to really get that benefit, the, the physical, as well as the, like we said, the emotional, the mental, the heart benefits, the cardio benefits out of everything that you do. I'm curious, we've talked about people with MS in the gym, but are other people coming to your gym as well? People without MS or chronic conditions, support partners, family members? Great question. And Yes, it started just with MS, and now we have many individuals that have Parkinson's and are sight impaired and have spinal cord injury. So it's it's really a, a facility now. We never want to say that we are a therapy facility. We are not. I am not a physical therapist by, by degree, by license, nor are the trainers that we have. So it's really a post-therapy program. 
So once they're done with physical occupational therapy, or sometimes when insurance says you're done, then Mm -hmm. they can come and continue a a wellness program. And it's amazing how, you know, we, when you have individuals in the same class that have Parkinson's or maybe some side impairment or uh, dementia or spinal cord injury, like we said, it's amazing how that bond comes together. It's about the individual, not about the illness. And it's amazing how they learn from each other and how much they apply their lifestyles to somebody maybe with another illness. So I think that's the great thing. We don't just want to say, uh, just because you have MS, you can be here, but otherwise you can't. When you have bad days, your uh-huh. symptoms are flaring up or when you're feeling extra fatigued, or maybe even if you have days where you don't feel as motivated, how, how have you worked through that for yourself? Yeah. And it's very simple. I always do is maybe 15 minute stretching program. That's all I do. So it's not taxing. But it's stretch, it's, it's, you know, you're stretching. So you're getting the oxygen and the blood flowing through your body and it just will make you feel better. It, it just automatically does. So, you know, I really don't lift weights and those kind of things. I just have a, a breathing and a stretching program and it really makes you feel better. And if I'm remembering correctly, you worked with the University of Nebraska on a few research studies. Well, you have a great memory, Megan, you're correct. <laughs> We did um, two studies with the University of Nebraska Medical Center. The first was really just to prove that individuals with multiple sclerosis can have the strength, same strength curves as those that don't. And we proved it. It was through a six-month study for, with 63 individuals. And yeah, we proved that people can make the same gains on a structured program as those that do not have multiple sclerosis. One area that wasn't that was, we didn't have the same gains was your core. And I think that maybe it may be the illness. It may be because we're aging one day at a time. You don't have that core strength that you did maybe when you're in your twenties. So that was the first study that we did. So we proved that. And the second was another study that proved that an exercise program can help the mental cognition as much as the physical. Mm. So we proved again, six month study, we had 47 individuals and people made between a 40 and 60% gain on cognition through an exercise program. So that was really, wow. a, really an encouraging, encouraging program. That's wonderful. I, I looked at your website before we talked and you also have not only exercise classes, but you have some cognitive rehab classes going at your gym as well. Can you talk about that? You bet. Thank you. And we have, it's, it's another individual. It's not myself. But it's another individual, first name's Amy, that worked with individuals with Parkinson's for probably 27 years, mm-hmm. cognition classes and speech classes is what she really works on. We have an individual here at the gym that when she started our gym, she didn't say a word. She did not talk. And some of it was just fear and just she hadn't done it for a long time. And then she went, her next stage was kind of looking at her husband to make sure that, you know, it was okay what she said or her husband kind of answered the question. And now I mean this in a nice way when I say this, we can't keep her quiet. It is amazing. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderful to see. If you, if you put the time in, the results are wonderful, regardless of where you are. I mean, we, we have an individual here that is an amputee. We have an individual that's a quadriplegic. And, you know, so really the movement is really probably chest enough. That's all he can do. But it's amazing how people can improve their lives with the program with people that care. And everybody that comes to our gym, whether it's 
tele, the teleprogram or the Inchim program. We absolutely love you guys because you're putting in the effort to make yourselves better. So let's work, let's do this together. It sounds like you've seen some really amazing transformations in, in the people who come to your gym. Yes, it's, we, we talked about the young lady that she's talking all the time. That's wonderful. Yeah. But, you know, individuals that came in with being pushed in a chair are now walking and doing different movements like a sit to stand type movement or, or doing ropes where they started out 30 seconds, the battle in ropes, 30 seconds and they were exhausted. And now they're doing eight without stopping. Even for me, I have one really good appendage, which is my left arm, but it's yeah. amazing. Just with that one arm, I can really get my heart rate going and I can really feel great about what I'm doing and I can accomplish a lot. And so even if we always say, let's strengthen what remains, right? Mm -hmm. Let's strengthen what remains. If it's a wrist and a hand, we're going to work that to make it also work your lungs and your heart as well. We started talking about the pandemic. Unfortunately, in this world that we live in, there's always going to be the next virus. There's always Mm -hmm. going to be bacteria, germs, there's flus, there's colds. So if we can keep our lungs and our heart and our muscles strong, we have a great chance of fighting, fighting that off if the next one comes around again. And that's the big thing. This is, this is a lifestyle decision. I'm curious if you have any new programs that you're working on or anything that's underway that you wanted to share or talk about. Thank you. Yeah, we, we entered a, a partnership with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Go Big Red if you guys are anybody in Nebraska <laughs> out there on the East Coast. But the final year medical engineers are, for part of their capstone project, are building four pieces of therapy equipment for us. So the first is a, a leg press, a leg press machine. It is all pneumatically driven, which means there's no pins that you change. There's no plates that you put on. It's all driven by hydraulics. All you do is set a dial and that's what the strength resistance is going to be. That's number one. And the nice thing is you don't have to transfer into a chair. You just take your chair, drive it up to it, and you're ready to go. And the second is a cardiovascular machine, similar to a new step. If you guys are familiar with new steps, again, it does not require a transfer. If you're in your own power chair, you come right into it. Your legs go into an elliptical apparatus, or otherwise it's more of an ergometer apparatus. Number three is a hip rotation where, you know, again, we don't get a chance to, you know, kick and kick out and kick forward and kick back like we used to do. Maybe we were younger. This apparatus allows you to do that. So again, you drive your chair right up to it. You don't have to transfer. Your legs go onto a a plate and Mm -hmm. depending on the direction you want, you can go as far around the world each way as you want, forward, back. So again, it's really working the hip flexors and areas that we don't get to do if we're not walking that much anymore. And the last is just a stretching machine. So it's an elevated stretching platform with, a, at the end, there's a hip abduction or ad, an adduction machine. So abduction, you're moving your legs out, adduction, you're moving your legs in. So it's really, it allows us to get more into the therapy portion of the strength training. There's tons of resources in your gym, but what kind of resources uh, do you like um, to share with others? Yeah, you know, there is, you know, again, the MS Society has a wealth of resources, but we have a program called an open gym. We have an hour during the day where we just talk, answer questions, talk. People have specific questions. We could just talk about them. We just want to be that resource. If, If we can't provide the program, at least we know exactly where to send you to get the information. 
If people want to find your gym, follow the work that you're doing, what's your website? Where can people find you on social media? Wonderful. MS Forward. That's what the name of our gym. M-S-F-O-R-W-A-R-D, just like it's spelled, dot org is our website. And there's a lot of information on that. I'll show my age when I say this, but you know, there's things to do with blogs and the things with social media that I'm not smart enough yet to really all understand, but that's all available through our new website. And one of the greatest resources is our members. They have lived with MS for a long period of time. They have had the disappointments, but they've also had the victories. And I think by being in contact with each other, that gives everybody a purpose. Yeah. You know, if, if I think if every day you can do something to make somebody's life better, that's a great MS treatment in my mind. You know, John Wooden used to coach UCLA basketball, was a 10-time NCAA basketball champion in the 60s and 70s. And he had a quote that said, you cannot live a perfect day without doing something for someone who will never be able to repay you. And that's, I think that so sums things up. You brought up the question, what if you're not feeling that great? What if, you know, just an off day and you're fatigued and those types of things, but what really works for me personally is just sending a word of encouragement to a friend. It may be, there's so many social media, it's now there's texting, there's emails, just send a note of, Hey, just thinking about you today. And that will just mentally and cognitively and psychologically make your day better. Making somebody else's day better will make your day better as well. Thank you so much for all your words of wisdom, for sharing this information and for taking the time to talk with me. Megan, I'm very humbled that you uh, asked me to do this. So I appreciate the time and God bless everybody. Now that you've heard from Daryl and his experience, both as a person living with multiple sclerosis, as well as someone involved in motivating others to stay active, we will turn to hearing from Pei Tang Lian a physical therapist at Johns Hopkins. Pei Ting discusses when to think about referring your client to a physical therapist, why she advocates for addressing mental health concerns, as well as steps for goal setting. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. My name is Pei Ting Lian. I'm a clinical specialist, um, a board certified neuroclinical specialist here at Hopkins. I think my special interest working with persons with MS started all the way back in college days, that mm-hmm. feels forever ago, but I can still very vividly remember my very first patient with MS. It was during my clinical rotation. I just remember going in there every day thinking, am I really helping this gentleman here? And yet uh, he taught me a very important lesson that today I'm forever grateful for is that it was very humbling, but yeah, it was very powerful that even though it may seem like nothing, all I did every day was going in there and stretching him before that nursing staff could help him get out of bed. Mm -hmm. He let me know that those stretches made a big difference in how he felt and how he was able to move and get on with his day. And so it really wasn't until I moved to start working here at Hopkins about 11 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, I started to get to work more with patients with MS and I am located in the outpatient setting. So I get the privilege of working with those that are within the community that are still ambulatory. They can come see me, but that's really run the gamut of those that are still young and working and busy with families all the way through to those that are retired, but are actually really just having to deal with the effects of aging, like all of us. What are some of the most common reasons that people with MS come to see you or would come to see a physical therapist? 
I would say the most um, common reason that I specifically get is a main challenge or complaint of having difficulty walking and specifically of dealing with foot drops and tripping. And a lot of times that they also have noticed that they're having more frequent falls or near falls and are losing their balance a lot quicker than they used to be, or they just in general have a harder time getting around. And they may note this as in they can't keep up with the family or Mm -hmm. kids or just doing their day-to-day activities. And are there other reasons that people with MS come to see physical therapy and some of the things that I'm thinking of off the top of my head or maybe vestibular issues, or sometimes I'm hearing from patients that they're seeing physical therapy for pelvic floor um, exercises. A lot of times vestibular issues are really triggering, well, basically more due to balance and feeling dizzy or off. A lot of times bowel and bladder issues are very common with um, people with MS. So a lot of times they do seek out pelvic floor therapy to help them with those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I also get some patients that come through and say, I've been working out, but I'm much, much more fatigued after I work out. And so mm-hmm. they actually are seeking out for better ways of how to handle and manage their overall day-to-day physical activities as well. Okay. That's very helpful. And in, in what ways do physical therapists help with symptoms like fatigue or like even chronic pain? I think fatigue is a very big topic for patients with MS and it impacts each, every one of them in a very specific or different way. So a lot of times we dive in a little bit to try to tease out what is the cause of this fatigue. If this fatigue is really because from the physical activity standpoint, the physical component of things, then that is totally up our alley of trying to mm-hmm. tease. Is it from stiffness? Is it from difficulty moving around? And so then if that's the case, then we really try to tease out what exactly is causing such difficulty and challenge in moving and getting around, which that might be stretches, that might be strengthening exercises. But if the fatigue is, could go the opposite direction too, like some people are very uh, gung-ho about getting everything done in a day. And so sometimes <laughs> end up having to really talk through, like, how do you manage a day? And what are some strategies that we may have to incorporate is so that the battery remains at a decent level instead of crashing and burning? And then basically they're laid up for the rest of the week after a big day of doing all the activities without pacing. So you also mentioned about chronic pain and chronic pain can be in two categories. One is more based upon the pathology of MS, which is impacting on the brain side of things. And that definitely we work closely with the other health providers, their neurologists, their primary care, but really for PT standpoint, we're really trying to address that the chronic pain that may be contributed or caused by more of the musculoskeletal aspect of it. And again, it could very well be spasticity, increase in tone, which causes increase in stiffness and then joint pain. So then we can definitely help and manage that. 
It could also be from weakness where basically then changing the way we're walking. So we're doing all these compensatory strategies, which then causes more of discomfort, whether it's hip pain, knee pain, or back pain. And all of those physical therapy can definitely help and address. That's really helpful. I'm actually working with somebody right now who I think saw physical therapy because she was having knee pain and she was doing, you probably know the term for it. I don't as a a mental health provider, but her legs swings out to the side rather than a typical walk, which was giving her a lot of hip pain. Yes, absolutely. I think our bodies are amazing and we're designed to move in a very efficient way, but we also know oh, if this isn't going to clear my foot and because I have weakness, I can't clear my foot. I'm going to stub my toe. Our body is like amazing to figure another way out to get the task done. Now, whether that's the best optimal way of moving or not is yet to be said. And which then can cause that pain that you're referring to Megan about that hip pain and a lot of times even back pain. Hmm, Interesting. I have another question here. I typically work with people who have concerns about using assistive devices. They're either very embarrassed to use them or they feel like they're not quite ready or they feel like they're giving into MS if they're using an assistive device. And I've heard from other physical therapists that sometimes that can actually help with fatigue or can help reduce pain or actually increase mobility. So I'm just wondering your perspective or if you have any thoughts about use of mobility aids for people who are having those difficulties um, with walking or foot drop or any other reason. Yes, absolutely. A lot of times I really do think that it is someone's choice of what they want to use. We can make the recommendations. Earlier days, I would be much stronger, but now I've learned that that they probably choose or a patient with MS choose to move a certain way for a certain reason. And just for the reason that you've explained that whether it's the cumbersomeness of it or that how other people perceive or giving into MS, those are all really valid. And what, what I try to present to the patients is that At the end of the day, what is the goal we're trying to achieve? And let them decide. That's for them to decide. If the goal is to be able to participate with the activity with the family without feeling so tired, even though you walk from here to there without any assistive device, but you're so tired and you can't even participate, is it really well worth it? Or could we try something so that you get to use it and so that you get to participate with the activities with the family, which is probably the ultimate thing that you set out to do anyway. So Mm. um, when I present it that way to um, my patients, they're a little bit more willing and open to that thought of maybe, hey, yeah, yeah, what is the end result I'm trying to achieve? Am I trying to prove that I can walk without any assistive device and then not able to participate? Or is it truly that I want to participate and that's more important to me? So I think trying to like dialogue with the patient of what is it that's really meaningful to them makes a big difference as Mm -hmm. to what they would like to use. And sometimes it just, for them, they're just not ready and it is okay. However, if it is a safety component or safety concern, then the dialogue might be a little bit more firm Mm -hmm. because I always say that one 
too many falls is one too many falls. And there's a switch that you wouldn't know whether you start losing your confidence and then things start to go downhill from there, or you fell and you broke something and that really lays you back and ties you, holds you back. Presenting it in that frame, like they're more willing to also to see the bigger picture. And then again, they decide. I love that because you validate what people's concerns are, or you really hear where they are and then meet them where they are. And you make a decision together in terms of whether that's the right fit for them and also whether it matches their goals, right? Because so, so some people, their goal might be to be as independent without any assistive device. And so then meeting them at that goal is very different than meeting somebody's goal who wants to have as much energy as possible so they can participate in an activity. And in terms of that, I think there are a lot of overlaps, or I guess there's a lot of complementary things that happen between physical therapy and mental health providers. So what you just described to me sounds very much like you're meeting the person where they're at, you're trying to understand what motivates them, and then figure out a shared goal to work on. And many times I think mental health providers do similar things, not necessarily always with physical uh, symptoms, but in what ways have you found it helpful to collaborate with a mental health provider in terms of working with people that have MS? Over the years, I have found it extremely helpful to have a mental health provider on the team. And I keep referring to this almost like it's teamwork. I only get a sliver of this that I focus on the physical component, mm-hmm. but I tell my patients all the time, you have an Olympian who's going to compete in the Olympics. They have a whole team behind them. So why shouldn't you? So essentially, I think a lot of times it is really difficult for someone to process what's going on with their life after receiving a diagnosis with MS. And then also just as life comes on and then there's a lot of challenges. And I always tell them it's really much nicer to have more tools in your toolbox to be able Mm -hmm. to deal with life. Some of my patients have challenges with significant depression, anxiety, and then difficulty in managing their stress, which all of those will then exacerbate their MS symptoms. So having a a mental health provider on the team basically can help address those and provide specific strategies and that that will allow the patient to have some more capacity to then participate in the physical sense. And so a lot of times we might dialogue, like what are some of the things that they've provided you as a strategy and how can we then integrate it into your physical activities? We can't separate the brain and the body. (laughs) So in a lot of ways, it's such a team approach to treat the whole person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know many times for me, it's so helpful to have a physical therapist on the team because if somebody is describing to me concerns about falling or fears about falling or how to get back into exercise, I can address maybe the anxiety part of it, but I also want to know that they're safe before I'm telling them to go and try something. Having somebody be evaluated by physical therapy or give safe exercises or teach somebody how to do something safely can be really effective and helpful. Are there other reasons that you think a mental health provider should refer somebody to physical therapy? If your client comes to you and is sharing with you about their frequent falls or their tripping, and they're really kind of just brushing it off and not really paying attention to that and just thought, thinks that's just part of my day to day. 
that shouldn't be the new norm. And that would be a nice sort of a hint to say, hey, maybe you want to consult a physical therapist to see if we can make that a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, So that safety aspect of things, I think would be very helpful. If someone also may be verbalizing that they're, they're working really hard and yet that's really impacting the rest of their day in terms of getting things done or just super fatigued and then makes them more tired at the end of the day. I think that's also a nice time point and be like, hey, would you like to consult with a PT and see if there's a better way of managing your day-to-day fatigue? Because a lot of times I think that can very well be because a physical tightness or stiffness or barrier basically contributing to the fatigue or that, that there's maybe a better way of managing that. Uh, And I know, I think we all know that with insurance, there's a limited number of physical therapy sessions. So even when people really benefit from physical therapy, it's not indefinite. So do you have any suggestions for how, how someone can maintain their gains, or even if they're working with a mental health provider ongoing, how that mental health provider can sort of support the motivation to maintain physical therapy gains? Yeah, that's a wonderful question because we're always concerned about insurance coverage and this is an ongoing process, not one of those done and done type of a deal. And so I have a lot of patients that I get to see throughout the years. And what we do is we just do touch points. And so every year if they need, as they call it, tune-ups, They might reach out and then come and see me for an evaluation to see if we need to update their plan of care or new exercises or any new things that's bothering them. But also that then the ownership is on them to continue on with it. And just like you said about the consistency of continuing on with your activities after physical therapy. So one thing I think is really helpful to collaborate with a mental health provider is basically setting goals to see how, what is that patient specific goal? And I always find that even as an athlete, I hate going to work out without like actual goal in mind, as in if there is like a trip coming up or something. And I always tell my patients, I'm like, nobody really likes to exercise for the sake of exercise. No matter (laughs) if they tell you it's so good for you, I get it. We need to have a frame around like, why would we do this? So what is the real why? And I think exploring that with a mental health provider also is very helpful and just keeping it very real did make them feel better, did make a big difference. And I think that makes them want to do the exercises. There's like thousands and thousands of exercises and they're basically saying I'm spending forever. That's my full-time job. I think that's also not. (laughs) And so um, coming together and formulating a workable, realistic activity plan is invaluable. So I think the mental health provider can also come in at that point to set some specific goals too with them would be very helpful. It's interesting that you said a trip because I, I literally was just talking to somebody the other day who is planning a trip to Europe with her significant other and had talked about worrying about the increased amount of walking that she was going to do and how that would affect her. And one of the things we talked about was going to physical therapy or maybe getting an evaluation with physical therapy so that they could give her sort of a pre-trip ramp up or how to get ready for that trip so that she would have either ways to manage her spasticity while walking or 
even increasing her stamina. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a wonderful way of getting someone increasing their physical activity, but with a wonderful goal in mind. But I also have to remind, remind a lot of my patients, like, you don't really just go from the couch and start running a marathon and expect yourself to survive a marathon. So in a lot of ways, this is very similar. It could also be very simplistic as in you don't expect yourself for not being sore doing all weekend of yard work when you haven't done yard work forever. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very similar. So um, having basically a physical therapist come in before your trip and really guide you through that progression would be very invaluable. And a lot of times it really helps you to then enjoy the trip and having gotten ready for that versus just be like, oh, I'm on this trip and, and all these things came up and really was you weren't able to enjoy the trip because we didn't really plan for that physically. And that sometimes then robs the joy of the actual trip. I wanted to ask a little bit more about exercise outside of physical therapy. Your physical therapy office is housed within a gym. That's correct. Yeah. Is there a transition for your patients from physical therapy into working with trainers at the gym or just getting them used to using the gym equipment so that they can have that seamless transition out of physical therapy? Yes. So right here at this facility, they have a very specific and special program called a PrEP program, which is short for Physician Referred Exercise Program. So they have staff on site who's a PT assistant slash nurse and who would take someone through the exercise equipment. But a lot of times if we know like a patient is interested in continuing on the physical activity in the gym. We try to like link them up with a personal trainer that they then have a familiar face and then can actually then transition into that. For those that don't live nearby, as I have a lot of patients that don't live near this community, I really try to encourage them to seek out whether it's a support group, whether it's like an exercise program, yoga, tai chi classes, or if they have the means and the finances, definitely set them up with a personal trainer. So I really think, again, back to that team approach, it really takes that team to come together and really help and allow this person with MS to live life to its fullest. And whether that means that meeting with a personal trainer one-on-one, a nutritionist or whoever, you want to get that team together to provide that support is invaluable. I really appreciate the time and energy you put into having this conversation with me. Any final thoughts or anything that I didn't ask you that you think would be helpful for mental health providers to know? I think for any mental health provider that is seeking for a physical therapy practice that actually specializes in neurological practice, one website that's really helpful is the APTA, which is the American Physical Therapy Association website, which has a link that says find a PT. Mm-hmm. And you would actually then also click on a neurospecialist in, in the filter so that the patient is able to see someone who specializes in neurological conditions and not just someone else that may be seeing other specialties. Similarly, if someone is complaining about bone and bladder issues, there's also a radio button in there that says pelvic health specialist.
Finally, we hear from Dr. Kathy Zakowski. She is the Associate Vice President for Research at the National MS Society, and she was previously a research faculty member at Johns Hopkins. She will talk about some of the literature and research that supports physical activity in people living with MS, as well as ways to incorporate movement even for people with advanced MS or significant physical disabilities. Finally, she also shares some resources for physical activity and movement. Kathy begins by describing her background. I have a varied background. So I also am an occupational therapist and treated people with MS for about uh, 15 years. I also had a laboratory and was on faculty at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, which is why I met you, Megan. (laughs) And there, um, my work was really focused on trying to better understand walking and balance and difficulties with that due to um, chronic conditions like MS. I also have a master's degree in exercise physiology through this sort of those three kind of areas, neuroscience, OT, and exercise physiology. I've always had kind of a special place in my heart for the importance of exercise. And so I've, I've read a lot of material around this. And in my new role at the National MS Society, I'm really, we have a wellness working group um, of individuals Um, that are specifically interested in exercise and physical activity. And these are researchers. And the idea is, what do we, you know, what do we need to be studying to better understand the importance of this very specific kind of activity? So, you know, I think there's lots of new information out there that I hope I can share today. That's great. And because of your background in so many different areas, I was really excited that you were part of this. A while ago, a few years ago, when we were both at Johns Hopkins, when you were at Johns Hopkins, you gave a talk. And I think you started that talk with a quote from maybe it was a researcher from NIH. And it said something to the effect of if there ever was a magic pill, that exercise would be that. And I'm probably getting that quote wrong, but I wondered if you could expand on that, on that quote, what makes exercise so important? What makes it that kind of magic pill? Yeah, I remember I do use that a lot. And I don't remember who I stole that from, but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't from me. But I really like the analogy because I think one thing that each of us can do to manage our health is to exercise. And and with MS, this becomes even even more important, right? Because people with MS have symptoms that vary and the symptoms that disrupt what they want to be doing with their life. And so anything that people can do for themselves outside of pharmacologic interventions is really empowering to them, right? So I'm not saying don't take your disease modifying therapies, but I'm saying exercise in combination has a lot of benefits for people. So even if you just think, you know, it's physiologically, it increases circulation, brings oxygen to the brain, strengthens muscles. So there's that avenue of the importance of exercise, but it also impacts people mentally, right? It improves depression. It's um, shown to improve anxiety. It improves fatigue, balance, quality of life. It really just affects so many different facets of our lives that it just seems like a really important piece to not forget. And unfortunately, people with MS aren't active enough. So it's a really important thing to emphasize to people that there's a lot to gain by exercising and and there's definitely more to lose by being more sedentary. So my new, my new quote that I've been using, you know, maybe a pill isn't the right analogy because it's more work. Exercise is more work than taking a pill. And our mm-hmm. society really pushes this idea of we want something to fix it. And exercise definitely takes effort and planning 
but the new quote that I use is that sitting is the new smoking. Mm-hmm. So the same idea, like we need to be up and stay active because just as we know how bad smoking is for us, we know now that smoking in particular is really bad for MS, but also it, this idea that we're staying sedentary is, is way, way too much as sort of gaining more and more traction. When I know as a mental health provider, I've seen some data looking at that connection between exercise and mood, but as you mentioned, exercise can impact a lot of different MS outcomes, or at least there's a correlation between exercise and a lot of different MS outcomes. So can you broad strokes, talk a little bit about what does research tell us about exercise and some of these things that people might be thinking about when they come into a mental health provider's office? Sure. There's pretty convincing evidence that exercise can improve symptoms of MS. And so if walking is often a really important goal for people with MS and walking is so important to everyone's independence. Um, So there have been quite a few studies that have really looked at the importance of exercise and physical activity. And so one thing to keep in mind is that exercise is something you do, it has repetition and you have a goal with it. Physical activity is something that you do every day around the house, with your job, anything that raises your heart rate. And so the research is really saying that you need to have participate in 150 minutes per week or more of exercise and or 150 minutes per week or more of lifestyle physical activity. So the important thing I would, I guess I would emphasize is that um, this, this exercise or physical activity can improve other symptoms that are really bothering people, whether they're mm-hmm. physical symptoms like walking and balance, or whether they're symptoms like related to cognition, like memory or depression or um, anxiety. But a critical element that, that I get a lot in the clinic is that, you know, I don't really know where to start. So I, mm-hmm. I want to exercise, but I don't really know what to do. So as a mental health provider, one thing you could encourage people to do is just start slowly and gradually progress. So really use your own common sense, just you want to be active. And so what feels comfortable and interesting to you, that's the kind of exercise or physical activity you you should be doing. It needs to be based on, you know, what your ability is, what your preferences are and how you can do it. I have a follow-up question that wasn't on the questions I sent you earlier, but I want to ask your opinion as both a clinician and a researcher, one thing that I come across a lot with people is that they either want to dive into exercise to quote unquote, make themselves better or keep themselves strong or keep themselves from progressing, or they want to use a tool or they see using a tool to help them be more functional as giving up. So if I, I will only use that tool if I do 10 weeks of exercise and don't see any benefits. So I know I didn't ask you to think about this ahead of time, but do you have any thoughts about balancing that using tools like using a wheelchair or using a walker as a functional tool to keep somebody more active and also engaging in exercise? Yeah, it's a really important point that I think, unfortunately, our society, again, really um, makes people feel like using a tool is a crutch. And that's Mm -hmm. really very, it's, I don't think that's very true. If you think about um, someone who wants to, who doesn't have MS and wants to go running, they have the choice to go outside or they can use a treadmill. That's a Mm -hmm. tool that allows them to exercise. So what I emphasize to my patients a lot is, 
you can use these tools to give you the independence and freedom to exercise. So maybe use your walker when you're walking outside for exercise, because that way you can probably go a little further safely, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have to worry about falling because really the, the last thing you want to be worried about when you're exercising is the safety um, hazards, right? And so tripping mm-hmm. or falling or just feeling too tired and not knowing where you're going to sit down is stressful. And so that way you're not really able to push yourself to get the benefits of exercise. Whereas for example, if you can walk with your walker and your walker has that little seat attached to it, now you're carrying your seat so you can push yourself to make, you can make a goal for your exercise, stop, put the brakes on and sit down and, and, and rejuvenate so that you can get your, so that you can turn around and come back, but you might be able to actually exercise more and, and, and so, you know, when you exercise more, you can, you can gain strength and endurance, and this can allow you to be more functional. So I, I would just encourage people that the tools you use, everybody uses tools to exercise. It just might look different for someone with MS. Instead of using the treadmill, they're going to use their walker, or even, even if they can't exercise, they can't walk very much even if they can move their wheelchair by manually using their arms for a certain mm-hmm. distance, that's a great way to get some um, benefits. So if you want to raise your heart rate, you want to use your arms so that you can get stronger. And this allows you to do it safely. So even if you don't always use your walk, your wheelchair, maybe just use your wheelchair for exercise. Cause again, it gives you that freedom to push yourself a little bit more. Is that kind of what you were getting at, Megan? Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love those examples. And, and that is something that I also talk to people about is that these tools are here to benefit you. They're not here to hold you back and they don't mean that you're giving up and that if we can use these tools to widen our world, then that means that you maybe could be more engaged even after a a bout of exercise where you feel a little bit more fatigued. Maybe you can use the tool afterwards so that you can put your energy into exercise something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I also use this analogy of of the amount of energy that each of us has. And I've noticed it more that even as I age that I have Mm -hmm. a certain amount of energy and I am a morning person. So I have a lot more energy in the morning, but as the day, as I go through my day, I have less energy. So figuring it out for yourself, when do you have the most energy and can I exercise during those times Mm -hmm. so that I can get my, I, I have motivation to push myself. And then I, as you exercise over weeks, you will notice that your endurance changes so that you will Mm -hmm. have more um, energy for longer. So Mm -hmm. initially when you start exercising, I think you will feel more fatigued, but, but that isn't, you know, if you can persevere and get through a few weeks of exercise, you can see the benefits of that. Right. Well, I think you've highlighted a couple of different things that might be barriers that get in the way of exercise. So fatigue might be one of them, maybe even um, physical functioning might get in the way. Are there other barriers that you commonly hear of that get in the way of exercising? Yeah. You know, I mean, with COVID, right. A big barrier is that I can't go to the gym now. I have to do something at home. So your physical environment is a, a really important thing to consider and is often considered a barrier. And, you know, there are ways to, instead of trying to get to the gym, you could try to um, use, you know, equipment at your home. There are, there are always solutions. I guess that might be the first thing to mention is that if you see a barrier, think about what a solution could be. And if you can't think of anything, talk to people around you, because I think support you as a mental health provider might be able to offer some help and just problem solving or, you know, someone in their family could, or, 
you know, there, there are different ways to, there are different solutions for the many barriers that exist outside of um, just where you're going to exercise. It could be, you know, that socially you have barriers. So you have limited support from family members. This might be something for sure a healthcare provider would, could hear about. So are there other peer support coaches or programs that you could be involved in that would, that would, you know, build up that social environment so that you could, could get yourself to be more active in, in different ways. Other, other barriers that I, I find a lot is fear. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't exercised in a long time. I used to be really active in high school, but now, you know, it's 20 years later and I don't even know if I, if I feel like I can do that. So that apprehension that comes with you know, having a condition that you know, makes moving difficult and also just with age, but it's really important to start small and set really small goals so that you can feel accomplished. And that, you yeah. know, that helps people have those choices, helps them feel empowered to do more. And then when mm-hmm. they're successful, then people often are like, wow, I, 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 I think I can do a little bit more. Right. And so it gives you yeah. a little bit more energy to, to try other things that I found that works is to keep a diary of how you feel after you exercise, even just a little bit, just to, because you won't remember that a week ago, you felt terrible when you exercised. Mm-hmm. And now it's not quite as bad, but you forget right. some of those subtleties if you don't write things down. Right. Yeah. I love that. You, you brought up the small goals and there's a researcher out at Stanford named BJ Fogg who talks about doing tiny habits. So very small goals. So I love that you brought that up. I, it's something I talk about a lot with my patients and also sort of tracking how it's going because that can be a huge motivator for people. I think also people tend to think, you know, we don't, I don't have time to exercise and, and I'm not, I'm not saying everyone has a lot of time and I know we all struggle with it, but this perceived lack of time is really a big barrier. So laying out your schedule and trying to think about where do I have some flexibility? Because again, you don't, I'm, you know, I'm recommending in the society and, and other researchers are recommending 150 minutes per week. And so people are like, oh my God, that is way too much. There's no way I have time to do that. But you could break it up into little pieces, like you're saying. I mean, even like five minutes of five minute pause to exercise. I can tell you personally, I use this myself because mm-hmm. I have a really busy schedule, but I, I know I need to get up and move and I don't have a lot of time for it. So I do these little snippets of small, I know can do MS uses the term snacks, exercise snacks. And I, I like that idea, just little, little bits that you can, you can actually do quickly. Yeah. And they have them on Instagram and other things like that. These like little five minute videos that you can follow along with to do exercises in small chunks. I like that. Yeah. Are there other resources? I know you brought up can do, and you've mentioned the MS society, but are there resources that are available to help get people back into exercise or to maintain exercise once they get started? So one thing I thought of um, that I know won't be accessible to everybody, but if you any of your clients are still working, there are often employees that will offer benefits to, to keep their employees healthy. And so mm-hmm. it might be really good to explore that and see if they can help with a gym membership or what do they offer? Uh, I know one group gives everyone a Fitbit to wear because mm-hmm. they want, and this decreases their health insurance cost. So it's, it, that's the benefit to the employees that if I, if I actually move more, I get some benefit. So don't be afraid to, to ask your employee about that or your employer about that. The society has this, this 
this area called Pathways to Wellness in MS. That is a really specific program that offers educational videos for you to follow that, that touch on a lot of different topics, but exercises is, is in there in a couple of different ways. Uh, the other thought I had was, you know, YouTube is an amazing resource for mm-hmm. exercise. I use it all the time. There's free videos. You don't always, you know, want to do the same kind of exercise every day. So, you know, using those free resources is, is really important things to keep in mind when you're just kind of going rogue like that and just going on YouTube or Google to search for things, make sure that the exercise that you're, you know, the video that you're watching kind of makes sense to you. And it, it, it isn't too hard um, because you don't want, again, you don't want to fall or hurt yourself and you can't mm-hmm. hurt yourself. Like part of the issue with exercise is it's really not like everyone can do everything. You have to kind mm-hmm. of figure out where you're at, what's a good level for you to work at to raise your heart rate and still be able to get through the rest of your day um, mm-hmm. and complete all the things that you know you need to do. But I, I, I definitely think YouTube is a great resource. There's also a woman named Emily Riley that I would, that I would encourage people to look up. She is a, she works for this national MS society, but she's also a physical trainer and she is doing a project with the university of Pennsylvania where they do wellness group exercise. And if mm. you can sign up to do this for free, you just, I would look up her name or under wellness group at the university of Pennsylvania, but there, I think there are, you know, I would look around locally at your at other universities that are nearby and see if they offer any kind of exercise program. You don't necessarily have to go to an exercise program that is for MS, right? Mm. You can, that's what I meant by kind of using YouTube and kind of thinking practically about what it is you can do. Um, yeah. There are sitting aerobic classes. There are there are Pilates classes that are all on the ground. So you don't necessarily have to be able to you know, be jumping around to do mm-hmm. aerobics. Anything that raises your heart rate, anything that makes you move your body is, is fair game. And so don't be afraid to make problem solve on your own and think about what it is that you have fun doing. I mean, maybe it's just dancing. There's mm-hmm. plenty of, of, of research actually now, even that, that dance is a great form of exercise. And so just put music on and dance around with your kids. That's another way to like get some exercise. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe this kind of your last answer plays into the next question that I had is, you know, sometimes people come and see me and we talk about exercise and activation for improving mood or addressing cognition. And if people have more advanced MS or they have more physical disability, sometimes they feel like they can't get into exercise. And I think you and I both know, no, that's not true, but can you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, are there ways that people with advanced MS can still exercise? Yeah, there, it's a really important point that you want to, yeah, I would definitely encourage um, the listeners to, to realize that anybody can exercise with any amount, uh, as long as you can move your body even just one body part, you can do exercise. So there are, you know, we wrote this paper earlier this year that's published that provides uh, really specific examples of exercise for people at different um, ability levels. Just to give you a few examples, I think breathing is really underrated. So, mm-hmm. so we have to breathe, right? Um, and oxygen is critical for our brain. But when you, and you take for granted that, you know, 
you get out of breath when you go up and down stairs, for example. And now when you're in a wheelchair or you use a walker, you probably try to limit how many times you have to ever use your stairs and you limit how much you walk just because you don't want to fall. So Mm -hmm. in MS, that becomes a really big problem because now you're never raising your heart rate and now your lungs never get that um, experience of really being pushed to, to take in more air. And so I encourage people to use this really cheap thing you can get at, at like a, a drugstore called a spirometer that you blow into it and there's a little ball that floats up and you can essentially use it as an exercise tool to, to keep your lungs in better fitness shape. So mm. I, and anyone can do that, right? You don't have to be able to walk. You don't have to be able to use your arms even. You just need to be able to keep breathing. But it's really important, especially as we go into winter, because that can stave off some, kind, some types of pneumonia. You know, you need to be able to breathe and your lungs need to have that experience of expanding and contracting. And we don't, you just don't do it as much if you're not getting out of breath for anything, which happens so much when movement becomes difficult. The other um, really important thing that I, well, there's a couple. Another important um, thing to keep in mind is that stretching is really important. So as you sit for longer periods of time, you know, your muscles are soft tissue. And so they end up contracting or getting small, like shorter. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to use one example, um, I'll just use my biceps. So if I always keep my arm bent, then my bicep, which is that muscle on the top of your arm, that gets shorter. And so if I stay that way and never extend my arm, those muscles will stay shortened. And so that sounds like, well, not that big a deal, but, but if you imagine that now I want to reach for something, now that muscle doesn't know that it can stretch anymore because you've let it stay shortened for so long. So that's, that sort of describes the importance for stretching and that you have to give your muscles that, that, that motor memory that they can stretch really long and they can get shortened, but you don't want to let them stay in one position too long. And when we sit for long periods of time, our legs, for example, get, get really stuck in that position of sitting. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important to stretch those legs out. I mean, every hour you should do some kind of stretch if you're sitting, if you're sitting all the time. Mm. And so another, a a third thing I wanted to bring up that I think shouldn't be, that should be considered, but would, you know, require going to a physical therapist, at least initially would be to use electrical stimulation. So Mm. the way this works, it's, it's not really as fancy as it sounds. Essentially, you just put a little um, electrode, which is like a little pad on top of your skin and that, and it's attached to a little wire that can provide a little impulse of electricity, just a little tiny one, enough to help you drive your muscles. So the way we make our muscles move now, again, is just by you decide you're going to move, but this electrical stimulation device can be used to try to help move muscle or help get muscles to contract when they can't, when you can't do it voluntarily. And I've seen, you know, there, there are lots of different ways this can be used. There are electronic devices that can um, be, that can stay on your leg and can help you as you walk. And there's also devices that you can just use when you want to exercise, but, and they're not all expensive. So I would definitely encourage, you know, encourage someone who's really struggling to find a way to exercise because they can't move enough voluntarily to explore this idea of, of functional electrical stimulation. 
again, I, I, you would need to go through a physical therapist or someone trained to use this. So you don't hurt yourself. The biggest harm is really that you could burn your skin because you are using electricity, but it really, there, there's no other negative side effect. So it's, it's perfectly safe when it's done by someone who is trained to use it. And then oh, one last thing I'll mention, cause I, I really do believe in this. Like there are people studying, you know, how do we get people who are unable to move very well? How do we get them exercising? Because we know exercise is so important. And so the last thing is just this idea of bed mobility. So yeah. if, you're laying, if you're laying in bed, even just the act of rolling one direction and then rolling the other direction, trying to lift your knees up, moving your arms over your head, all those things are called bed mobility from a kind of an occupational therapy perspective. But all of those things are so important because you're using your muscles to move and you want to keep that independence of being able to move in bed. It's also a really safe environment. You can't fall. Mm -hmm. You're already laying down, right? So mm -hmm. as long as you don't roll off the bed, which would be not good, <laughs> you'd want to, otherwise it's a perfectly safe way to exercise. And, and I think, again, something we kind of forget is exercise, but it really can be for a good form of exercise, especially for people who have trouble moving against gravity in a seated or standing position. That's great. Thank you. These are such good examples of ways that people with advanced MS can exercise. I love it. And I know some of my patients also work with places like Kennedy Krieger and other rehab centers Absolutely. who can, who have advanced equipment to help them move, even if they aren't voluntarily able to. Yeah, actually. And one last thing, let me just jump in yeah. before we, the other thing is to look for um, centers. They don't have to even specialize in MS. So for example, the Kennedy Krieger Institute really specializes in spinal cord injury, but they, mm -hmm. but MS kind of fits into that because your spinal cord is, is involved with MS, um, especially when there's physical disability issues. So being open to other institutes or centers in your local area that might have uh, facilities is important. That's great. So one final question, and then um, we're going to end is just if people want to find out more or they want to follow either the work that you're doing or other exercise researchers, do you have any suggestions for where they can learn more? So I would, I would definitely look at the National MS Society. Um, you know, I, I work there, which is, which is great, but I know that they're very careful about what they put on their website. So I, it's a good sound source for finding information about wellness, about mm -hmm. exercise and physical activity. Um, and you can trust that. I would also really encourage you to go to Can Do MS. I think they're mm -hmm. also very careful about what they put online. I would, you know, I would encourage you to read critically. So when you read things online, don't just agree with what they're saying. I would really make sure it comes from a, a source, an academic source would be my, my, my first, my first opinion. But I, but I encourage you to read and stay informed, but, but people that um, publish in journals that are peer reviewed, then you know that there's more credibility to what they're saying versus always just reading magazine articles, which might not have as much of that critical piece is really important so, we, so that you can share with your clients the best information and, and not be providing, you know, even inadvertently kind of misinformation. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate your time and expertise. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate talking about this topic. I hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening to the Find Empathy podcast. If you would like continuing education credits for listening to this episode, go to findempathy.com backslash learn. 
Our goal is to help people living with challenging medical conditions find the mental health providers who understand their diagnosis. Our education and this podcast is focused on increasing the number of mental health providers who can help. If you are a psychologist or a mental health provider that specializes in health populations, please consider signing up on the free Find Empathy directory. Go to findempathy.com and select Get Listed. We would love to connect with you on social media. Look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have suggestions for topics you would like covered by this podcast, let us know. Our email is info at findempathy.com. Finally, please know that the opinions expressed by the experts today are their own. We are not financially supported by any of the businesses or resources described in today's podcast. Also remember that the content provided today is for educational purposes only. Please seek the guidance of your doctor or mental health provider for any questions you might have regarding your own health or medical condition. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to you joining us in the next episode.